Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Today on the podcast, we're going to tackle another compound of controversy. We're going to talk about Kratom or Kratom or Kratom, depending on where you're from and who taught you how to pronounce it. But Kratom is a compound or actually more rightfully described as a plant that is shrouded in controversy, but has been with nations like Indonesia and Malaysia for really centuries. And so why is it shrouded in controversy? Well, I got the world's foremost expert on Kratom to come on the show today to explain why it's shrouded in controversy, but to also shed light on the benefits that you could potentially get from using Kratom. My guest today is Christopher R. McCurdy, PhD. And aside from being the internationally recognized expert on Kratom, He's a broadly trained pharmaceutical scientist and pharmacist whose research focuses on the design, synthesis, and development of drugs to treat pain and drug abuse. Dr. McCurdy serves as the director for the University of Florida Translational Drug Development Corps, and he's a member of the editorial advisory board for the Journal of Medicinal Chemistry and ACS Pharmacology and Translational Science. He served as the 2017 and 2018 president of the American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists and currently serves as a consultant to the U.S. FDA and the National Institute of Health. Dr. McCurdy has published over 120 peer-reviewed manuscripts and has been issued five patents. So he's one smart cookie. I'm just going to turn it over to the conversation because I want you to enjoy this. It was enlightening for me and I hope it is for you. The show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash Kratom. That's K-R-A-T-O-M. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Chris McCurdy. Dr. McCurdy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I've been looking forward to this conversation all day, Chris, and I, I have to start with just one question because you got your PhD at Georgia, you did your postdoc at Minnesota, and now you're working at the University of Florida. So who's your college football team? So uh, I went to pharmacy school first before all that to uh, Ohio Northern, which is division three sport. So, um, I, I, I love Ohio Northern, but when it comes down to football, it's, it's Georgia Bulldogs. And uh, I did spend 16 years at the University of Mississippi before coming. Um, I, I have to say I'm very partial to the SEC, uh, mm-hmm. and I do recognize who pays my paycheck. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, today, I know you've done research on a number of different uh, areas, uh, specifically as it relates to opioids, but also I've seen papers of yours on nicotine. Uh, but today we're going to speak about uh, Kratom or Kratom or Kratom. Is there a, an actual way that we should pronounce this correctly? Uh, so I, I've been influenced mostly by my colleagues in Southeast Asia who call it Kratom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've always we've always referred to it as kratom. Just quickly, um, it's been more socially called uh, kratom. Uh, I think you you can see in various documentaries or podcasts or or um, interviews most of the, most of the people uh, in the United States call it call it kratom. Um, so it's it's a tomatoes and tomatoes type thing. I think it's however you want to call it. I, I don't think there's any um, mistaking when you Kratom or Kratom or Kratom, that's all the same thing. So let's talk about Southeast Asia for a second. The, the plant itself or the, or the tree, which is actually behind you, if you guys are watching the YouTube video right now, um, is, is brewed in, well, traditionally used in Southeast Asia as sort of a brewer it was. In certain places, it's now illegal, I believe, in Malaysia. But um, 
In that traditional brew, there's been no reported deaths to my knowledge. What is sort of, how does the controversy differentiate between sort of Southeast Asia and what's going on in the United States? Yeah, so I, I think the the first and foremost uh, difference is the fact that in Southeast Asia and in Malaysia in particular, where I've been and seen um, kratom traditionally prepared, the the, the users uh, will pick the leaves fresh off the trees in the morning and take that fresh leaf and right into boiling water. And it boils in the water for somewhere around two to three hours um, before they'll actually start to spoon it out. And the women are traveling to Indonesia. Uh, and and there's a time, uh, period of time where that is drying, obviously. Um, they're exposed to air, heat, uh, different conditions as they are shipped from Indonesia by various methods. Um, and what we've what we've noticed is some of the chemistry changes mm-hmm. in the leaf material from freshly prepared uh, um, juice, as they call it. Uh, we, we would call it a tea here, uh, but the Malaysians refer to it as kratom juice. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's there's a big difference that we're seeing in the chemical profile of fresh leaf brewed tea versus dried leaf material that's coming into the United States. And that, I, I wouldn't, that's what's responsible for some of the differences we've seen, but it certainly raises question scientifically as to what's the understanding of some of these other chemicals that are potentially produced harvest. So if you're picking these leaves fresh and going right into fresh boiling water, um, there's not time for that leaf material to dry, be exposed to oxygen, uh, deprived of its normal plant nutrient line anymore. Um, and as those leaves dry out, they the exposure to heat, light, and oxygen, um, that, that can change the chemistry that's involved. And that's what we see, what we believe we're seeing uh, with all the products that come in. There's a lot of products that are that are tested um, and and really investigated to make sure that their chemical profile is is very consistent in terms of the major alkaloids that we talk about, mitragynin and oxytragynin, and what levels are there? Are they what's been reported in the sort of traditional literature? Um, and then only there's some material that comes in that has much higher levels of uh, semi-hydroxymitragynin and lower levels of mitragynin that some of the more reputable vendors and um, uh, sellers will will discard. But the problem is, is that doesn't mean it gets discarded out of place completely. It ends mm-hmm. up in the hands of, you know, some of the less reputable vendors uh, and it ends up out in the marketplace. And so, you know, it, it's not to say that vendors are the only ones that have good material. There's some, but it can get their hands on good material, but um, it's a cost difference, one. And two, um, every single batch that comes in has a different profile. And so even if you buy the same product um, this month and go back and buy the same product the next month, if it came in from a different batch, then the chemical makeup is different. And so it's it's very hard to... Um, really control and understand what product is being sold in the marketplace. And so, you know, without any kind of standardization in place, without anything really understood about the seasonal um, changes that happen in the plant and what levels of compounds may be um, increased or decreased at a certain time of the year. Uh, For instance, the, the Southeast Asia has monsoon, so you have a very wet Uh, and moist season of the year, and then you have a very dry season of the year, and are there differences in the alkaloid profiles during those times? These are all questions we don't have answers to yet, and so there's a lot of of information we still don't have. (laughs) I I love, um, I love, 
sort of the investigatory process that you and your team are doing. And I mean, you and I were chatting before we clicked your cord that you do are looking at everything from the horticulture all the way to the, I, I guess, almost the, um, the different properties and benefits of it. Now, when you plug Kratom uh, into the Google machine, uh, you obviously get a, a number of people claiming that it is controversial. Um, there are a number of these claims that it causes addiction, death, etc. cetera. Um, and, and I know you've done some, you published a few papers on this in terms of the, the deaths related to Kratom may not necessarily be Kratom's fault. Can we talk a little bit about um, some of that in terms of what you've uncovered in the investigations of those uh, potential issues? Sure. So um, we're not the only ones that have done that. There's a, there's a good number of other researchers that have really dug into uh, looking at the death cases and, and more specifically digging really deep into coroner reports and then what's, what's going on and what's happened there. Um, from our standpoint, there's a couple of things that and long before Kratom became controversial uh, or or really of concern, uh, we had some papers back in the early 2000s uh, around this and case studies. Um, and there's some papers that we never did publish, but we were contacted by emergency rooms that had patients that showed up uh, that were in an overdose situation uh, in other words, their tox tests lit up for opiate use, um, mm-hmm. but they swore up one side and down the they weren't using any prescription opiates or illicit opiates. They were only using Kratom. And so we were lucky enough to be able to get in that instance, we were able to get this sample that this individual suggested. And um, when we conferred with the emergency room docs, what drugs lit up in the toxicology panel, um, then we knew to go look for those drugs in that Kratom sample. And sadly, that Kratom sample was adulterated with uh, hydrocodone or, or Vicodin mm-hmm. uh, or Lortab, depending on which um, brand of, of hydrocodone. So so for one, uh, it brings up the whole issue of adulteration of products. And... Um, you know, this was, we, we ended up with um, another case uh, where we had a, a patient's kratom that was laced with morphine. Um, and and it, it seems odd to me that someone would go through the trouble to put a highly refined, expensive prescription medication to uh, a herbal supplement or, or a food product, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, like kratom. So... Uh, it, it's, it seemed weird, but I guess, you know, when it was the early marketplace, they wanted to potentially get people thinking, wow, this stuff is, is really working. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we run into issues about some of the other cases that have come up and many of the deaths were, uh, co-committant use of other substances. So these patients that are the individuals that um, were deceased, ended up having other drug substances in their body, um, sometimes other opioids like fentanyl uh, or uh, heroin or prescription drugs, uh, other drugs like um, benzodiazepines, mm-hmm. uh, antidepressants, excuse me, um, several different uh, prescription drugs. And then there are a few death cases that were attributed only to. Kratom. And I want to explain something about forensics a little bit. Uh, if, if a product is contaminated with a substance that you don't know it's contaminated with, mm-hmm. it's sort of like looking for a needle in a haystack. If you're going in, figure out, was this contaminated with some synthetic cannabinoid or some new synthetic opioid that we don't have the means or the understanding to look at in a routine screen. Um, all we can really do is profile the fingerprints of the Kratom product, or able to get our hand on exactly what an individual ingested. Um, 
and then see what the profile is, the fingerprint, if you will, of that plant. And if we see something that's out of place, then we can try and investigate that further. But that doesn't mean we're going to be able to go in there and and click on a, a particular peak that we see that's abnormal and figure out exactly what it is. It's mm -hmm. a, it's not that exacting of a science. And I don't know if you ever saw the movie Medicine Man uh, with Sean Connery, rest his soul uh, now. But Sean Connery was out in the jungle and they, they had a... Um, a spectrophotometer that they put the sample in and it shows the peaks. And this is exactly what we do. Um, but the, the his was you could click on the peak and it would give you the full chemical structure of exactly what it was. Um, mm -hmm. That's, that's the Hollywood part of it. Uh, mm -hmm. If we could do that, we'd know a lot more about a lot more things, but um, <laughs> that's, that's unfortunately not true. So, so bottom line is long history of, of safe use uh, in Malaysia, in Thailand, in Indonesia, in the Southeast Asian um, uh, peninsular area. Um, and that didn't translate to the U.S. So we, mm -hmm. we had maybe a short period of time of safe use um, until it started to become a chemical of concern. And there was a, a lot of worry from the DEA that this could be opioid-like and addictive-like. Um, and then what happened was a lot of people started to get a hold of it and say, hey, let's let's push as high as we can get and see if we can get uh, euphoric feeling or whatever type of feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get into some of the products that, uh, like I said, could have been adulterated or whatnot. But it also goes back to what we talked about earlier in the difference of the products that are coming in and coming back to these two alkaloids. So you have mitragynin or mitragynine, which is the major alkaloid in the plant. And a lot of the work that we've done have shown that it's a very um, benign molecule. Uh, it, it interacts with several biological targets, not just opioid receptors, mm -hmm. but it activates opioid receptors only in a, what we call partial agonist or or a, a um, very light touch on the gas pedal. Uh, think of if you had a governor on the engine that you could only go to a certain speed, you couldn't go full speed or full capacity of that engine versus mm -hmm. something like fentanyl or heroin that activates the opioid receptors absolutely as efficiently as possible. So mitragynin is a very different or what we call atypical opioid um, in that manner. And, also because it interacts with several other biological targets mm -hmm. um some of which some of which are used in the treatment of opioid withdrawal syndrome uh opioid use disorder and so this is why we got excited around looking at and in itself as a potential treatment and by extension then kratom for opioid withdrawal or opioid use disorder uh, the the we've also shown that mitragynin uh, is not self-administered by animals, so they don't develop a sort of king for mitragynin. They don't seek mm -hmm. it out. Uh, when you individually take it out of the plant, they, mm -hmm. it also has been shown uh, in our study and another study to decrease uh, the intake of other opioids like morphine or heroin. And so mm -hmm. um, there's some real excitement there about potential treatment. The the flip side of that is the 7-hydroxymitragynin, which is the other compound that everyone talks about. Yeah. And we know now that 7-hydroxymitragynin is actually a metabolite that's generated from our own liver mm -hmm. uh, of mitragynin. So you take mitragynin, you convert that into 7-hydroxymitragynin, somewhere on the neighborhood of 3 to 9% of the total dose of mitragynin gets converted. Uh, to 7-hydroxymitragynin, and we're not we're not really sure uh, at this moment in time what that means in terms of its physical activity. Uh, I mentioned that mitragynin at certain doses can block the intake of heroin or or um, morphine, mm -hmm. and it can block the effects of those drugs as well, as long as mitragynin is still sort of in a higher concentration. And so when you have a small amount of 7-hydroxy produced from mitragynin, I don't know if that small amount is enough to surmount the mitragynin that's still available and the, that mitragynin may be blocking the 7-hydroxy effect. Mm -hmm. the, the, what I was talking about with the products is some of the products are 
um, having increased or higher levels of 7-hydroxy that we've seen that are coming in as dried leaf material. This, not only is this uh, 7-hydroxy a product of our um, liver metabolism and intestinal metabolism, but it can be a product of exposed to air and heat mm-hmm. and drying uh, of the leaf material. And so over time, what you see is um, in certain products that mitragyne can drop, hydroxymitragynin levels can increase. Mm-hmm. And we don't understand where that breaking point is, is mm-hmm. to where all of a sudden you have more 7-hydroxy uh, you still may have technically more mitragynin, but you get a larger amount of 7 that now the mitragynin can't block. Yeah. And 7-hydroxy effects start to be predominant. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we're starting to see issues with um, people that are becoming addicted or reports of people becoming addicted. I mean, I've talked to physicians that run treatment centers that patients that only take um, Kratom and they are being treated for uh, Kratom uh, addiction um, mm-hmm. and, and withdrawal. Uh, so it, so it, it's out there. It exists. Uh, we still don't also don't understand um, fully how the metabolism takes place. And mm-hmm. if there is a population of individuals that metabolize mitragynin to 7-hydroxymitragynin much more rapidly or much more efficiently and therefore become more uh, abuse or, or addiction liable. Um, so there's, there's still a lot of genetics we don't understand in terms of, uh, human side of, yeah. of use. And so we're, we're really trying to understand the metabolic enzymes that are involved. Um, if there are differences in the population in those metabolic enzymes that produce the seven hydroxy, uh, from mitragynin, uh, and then of course, what's the total product that someone's ingesting? What are the levels that they're starting with baseline of mitragynin and 7-hydroxy? And then is that creating an influence? So there's still so many, again, so many questions that we don't have answers to. Um, but we, at least we are learning the questions to ask Yeah, and, and understanding what we really need to be looking at. Um, and then to underscore that a little further, there's, there's up to reports of up to around 40 different alkaloids in the plant. Mm-hmm. And we've studied in pretty much in depth, we've studied about 15 of those alkaloids. Um, and they're all in very minor concentrations compared to mitragynin, which is the player. Um, there's a few other uh, alkaloids. One's called pananthine, one's called speciogynin, and another one called speciocyalatine. Those three alkaloids sort of make up the next wave of the major, the last remaining major alkaloids in the plant. Uh, and what we've learned about their ecologies is they're very different. Um, speciosialatin we've published is an opioid uh, receptor ligand as well. So it activates opioid receptors and we don't understand what contribution that compound is giving to the overall effect of kratom either. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that uh, pananthine and speciogynin, which are very structurally related, uh, different pharmacologies. They don't interact with opioid receptors at all. And we're just about ready to publish uh, those stories as to what the pharmacology is associated with those, but I'm not at real liberty to let that cat out of the bag yet. Uh, but but it is definitely going to be interesting in terms of the whole story of, of what the plant's doing. Mm-hmm. So Chris, on the, um, the metabolic enzymes that you speak of, and I think I just want to spend a moment talking about uh, these stacks that or these uh, toxins or whatever you want to call them, the um, the ones that people uh, kind of illegally formulated, if you will, uh, is the issue around cytochrome P450 enzymes in terms of just how these are metabolized and therefore the drugs that are combined with them shouldn't interact necessarily with those? Or is it something else? Or is it kind of one of those we're still waiting to see? All right, so when it comes to exercise, there are a few devices that I love more than a B-Strong. Why? Because sometimes you just don't have time. I, like many of the people listening to the show, have a lot of things to do. Building businesses, for instance, does take up quite a bit of time. And so if I need to get a good workout in that puts on muscle in 20 minutes a day, I'm going to go for the B-Strong. 
Blood Flow Restriction Training is the name of the game here, and you got to check this thing out. Head on over to bestrong.training and use the code BOOMER for a fat 10% discount. Check it out, bestrong.training. That's the letter B, strong.training. Let's get back to the show. So the answer to all your questions is yes. <laughs> I don't, we, we are, at the end of the day, we're still waiting to really figure it all out. We're starting to get some initial ideas and we've published some of this already uh, in the in the scientific literature, but cytochrome P450s are, are definitely one of the major metabolic enzymes involved in, in um, the metabolism and elimination, eventual elimination of the, alkaloids from the human body mm-hmm. uh, we also know that the major drug metabolizing enzymes uh, cytochrome 3a4 uh, which is really responsible for the metabolism of about seven percent of prescription drugs um, it is the major clearance pathway for the kratom alkaloids as well which mm-hmm. should come as no surprise kratom alkaloids are similar to some prescription alkaloids um, that we've seen uh, in terms of this. Um, so that's really no surprise, but what happens then is you're talking about something that's like a revolving door, right? So that enzyme can only accept one substrate at a time through that door. And it depends on which one is going to have a higher preference at the time that it comes through there. So you can get sort of a backlog of what's being metabolized. Um, depending on the presence of other substances. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not to say that that would have clinical relevance. It may or may not have a clinical relevance to it. Um, But, you know, one of the major things in terms of drugs that are metabolized through cytochrome 3A4, which is only cytochrome that's present in the intestinal tract as well, those are the ones to avoid grapefruit juice with because there's certain compounds in grapefruit juice that inhibit cytochrome 3A4. And so... So first thing that you would come to find is, okay, we better, uh, you know, not take uh, kratom and grapefruit juice together. Mm-hmm. But, but as far as other things go, we haven't come down to what specific drug-drug interactions are going on. We're, we're looking into, I know there's other groups as well that are looking to the herbal interactions uh, of, of some of these substances. Um, but we also also did a full what's called uh, cytochrome p450 phenotyping study on most of these alkaloids and uh, th- there's a little bit of moderate inhibition of cytochrome p450 2d6 by a couple of the kratom alkaloids mitragynin in particular and cytochrome 2d6 is an important um, metabolizing enzyme for drugs that are active in the brain so many uh, antidepressants, many substances of abuse, um, uh, many antipsychotic drugs are metabolized by CYP2D6. And so, you know, you, you sort of put two and two together and look at some of the harm, uh, either, either poison control centers or uh, autopsy reports that we've seen where there was combinations of, of CNS-active drugs with Kratom on board that may or may not have been the result of why there was a fatality associated, but um, all of these things are definitely um, under under study and uh, of interest to us to understand what's going on. Are we seeing elevated levels of 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 um, other substances, or are we seeing elevated levels of kratom compared to when we just give either one alone? Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a lot of questions about that whole metabolic process and how um, that's either causing latent increases in certain compounds or maybe even cause to be eliminated faster. Mm-hmm. We just don't, we, we really don't understand that. And then again, uh, you know, to bring up the genetic component, uh, all of us are different. Uh, we like to label people into slow metabolizers, normal metabolizers and fast metabolizers convenience sake um but yeah we just we just don't just don't know enough right now 
Yeah, it's it's a very complicated multifactorial problem, it seems like. And uh, so I, I wanted to transition, Chris, if it's okay now, to because we've talked a lot about the the controversy and sort of um, some of the the questions that surround Kratom, but everybody listening to this is probably wondering about the benefits, right? Because there's a lot of potential benefits and a very long history of those benefits. Uh, can we just discuss some of those, uh, specifically the stimulus, like the slight stimulus maybe, and then the the pain, if you will? Um, we can go into other ones if you want, but what would be some of the potential benefits of somebody taking Kratom? Yeah, so what, what we're, uh, first of all, I'll make my disclaimer, all of our work is in rats. So, <laughs> and, and rats aren't humans, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but I mean, but that's where we have to start scientifically to build uh, the evidence to start looking at potential human clinical trials. Um, and so what, we've, what we have seen, um, and, and from anecdotal reports, and we love getting reports of, of um, the human experience, uh, whether it's positive or negative, because those allow us to ask questions that we can then model and study in the animals and see what's going on. And so um, what we've learned, particularly about mitragynin and, and what we've published is that and I touched on this a little bit earlier, it interacts with opioid receptors, but mm -hmm. only partially. Uh, but it also interacts with alpha adrenergic receptors. And alpha adrenergic receptors are the targets for uh, adrenaline um, and what, what well, the same thing, epinephrine or norepinephrine and noradrenaline. Uh, so that, that could possibly explain some of the stimulus uh, activities of, of what's going on in terms of interactions with these sort of fight or flight hormone, um, targeting the body. And it's interesting because if you look at the, the known use, lower doses cause a stimulant type effect. Uh, and really a lot of the anecdotal news we hear from human users is that if they just take a nice small glass of tea, uh, in the morning, or they take uh, a regular herb capsule, not any concentrated extract or anything like that, um, that they have more energy, they're much more likely to get up off, off the couch and engage and do things um, versus when they were on opioids, just felt spaced out and didn't want to be uh, engaged. So many emails about you know, I've gotten back in touch with my family and I'm re-engaged in society and I'm much more productive. So, it's, you know, some of those anecdotal benefits are really interesting and fascinating. Those are really hard to measure in animals uh, yeah. because animal can't, animal can't tell you like, you know, I feel great. I'm ready to go run around with my friends and do whatever. Animal can't email. No, but we can, we can draw some indirect effects effects from the animals in terms of just their gross behavior, right? Mm -hmm. If they're active and moving around and doing um, normal, normal behaviors, they're not sedated. They're not, you know, they don't look drug, look like they're in, in bad shape. So uh, we definitely can see some of that. And, and we think that um, this also could be related, this adrenergic system effect could be related to some of the poison control uh, center calls, which um, most people that have ingested too much kratom, and I wouldn't go as far as saying overdose, um, but they at least get to a point where they're calling a poison control center because they've had an outcome that's not favorable, uh, mm -hmm. such as such as convulsions or something like this. Um, and that's really the majority of poison control center in ER visits have, have been um, convulsed related, which is much more stimulant-like uh, effect that you would see with something like cocaine or um, the amphetamines. Mm -hmm. So the, the overdoses, if you want to call them overdoses, um, don't really look like opiate overdoses. So people aren't going into respiratory depression um, and turning cyanotic or blue uh, and those types of things, they're having a more stimulant-like experience uh, to that. So, so that's that's there. Uh, you know, it's, it's go back to the uh, the old uh, Winston Churchill: every moderation 
Mm-hmm. moderation of course right but mm-hmm. if you're taking if if someone is taking this substance you know really the low dose the the small amounts the estimated this is uh, between three to five grams of leaf material per per dose um uh, based on what human consumption is and that's that's an average dose that I don't know it, what it does for you pharmacologically. Uh, we haven't studied that at all, so I have to make that disclaimer mm-hmm. know, in humans. Um, but that's where types of benefits and so you can or uh, depressive-like effects or, or euphoric-like effects. And um, I think that's where uh, problems have come into play. Um, people like to push the the envelope and yeah. uh, see where they can get to the experiences. And so, you know, there's not any substance out there that's not um, bound for trouble if you take too much of it. Uh, not not to say that kratom is totally safe. We don't know that. We can't say that. Yeah. I mean, there's been the safe use of the traditional way for years and years and years, but. Uh, uh, we're comparing apples to apples when we're comparing um, products. Mm-hmm. And we really can't say we're comparing apples to apples when comparing the Southeast Asia use versus the Western Hemisphere use of yeah. the materials. And so that that makes it tough. Um, but, you know, we're, we're also seeing uh, potential benefit use in terms of um, pain treatment, uh, where this is a, a mild, uh, really mild pain uh, killer in, in animals, uh, somewhat comparable to things like ibuprofen or codeine. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not as potent as, say, morphine or hydrocodone or something you would take for severe pain. Um, and that makes sense because it only partially uh, activates opioid receptors. But again, it's involved with activation of many other uh, neurological targets and systems. And so you get some of the, some of these other types of beneficial effects. A lot of people report using it for mood elevation. I mean, mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about that. Uh, and again, that can be related to some of these other uh, neurological systems that are involved. Um, and then the, the last uh, benefit that we're looking at uh, certainly is um, treatment of of opioid withdrawal yeah. uh, and opioid use disorders um, and, and really hoping that that's something that, that can be helpful uh, as an alternative to something like methadone or buprenorphine. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and we'll just, we'll just have to, the science takes us on, on all of that. We've, we've shown good uh, promise in animal models of uh, addiction that, that we can lessen the severity of withdrawal with, with lyophilized kratom tea. So we made freeze-dried kratom tea, uh, and we feed that to the animals, and they mm-hmm. uh, they seem to do really well with that in terms of it reducing the side effects from opioid withdrawal. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's really – those are the areas that we see as potential benefits moving forward. Uh, and then to balance all of that with, you know, some of the potential – um, risks that we talked about. What's what are the right patients to use it in? What are the right doses to use it in? What are the right concentrations of alkaloids to be in there? Can we get to a standardized product that that would really be something that you know exactly what you're taking when you're taking it, um, and you can feel that it's been proven to be safe and effective? So those are the areas we're headed. <laughs> Can we uh, double click on the pain point now, Uh, just because all of these are fascinating to me. And unfortunately here in Amsterdam, ironically, it's, it's harder to source good Kratom, but with pain and uh, mitragynine and 7-hydroxymitragynine, it seems particularly interesting as you've mentioned, and I know you've done a lot of work on opiate withdrawal and, um, as a potential replacement for opiates, uh, would it, it, can you simplify it to that statement, or is it something that we're still looking at, and just in terms of the potentials for these two alkaloids, if you will, uh, for for pain? I, I think um, one of one of my colleagues, uh, Andrew Krugel, who's uh, started a company called Cures. Um, it's basically really going after that um, that bit, looking at 
analogs of of the kratom alkaloids um, that that can be patented uh, and developed as patented medicines uh, for pain. They're really looking at um, developing new pain medications based on or inspired by the the kratom alkaloids that could be uh, could be uh, less um, less side effect mm-hmm. producing uh, than the traditional opioids, but yet still have good pain uh, control. Uh, and so he's, he's put a lot of focus into that as far as, um, you know, using Kratom for, for pain in general. Uh, I do believe there's a lot of information out there, um, particularly in chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, there's no scientific studies, but, there's a lot of anecdotal, um, again, reports from humans that say they can really control their chronic pain uh, by using kratom. And the and the body's nervous system changes and adapts in a cr- chronic pain situation. So acute pain is much different. You know, you hit your thumb with a hammer uh, when you're putting a nail in the wall. That it's going to hurt for a little bit, it may hurt for a few days, but it, it's going to go away, and you'll go back to normal. Whereas chronic pain, you get damaged and you have a change in the nervous system and its conductiveness and, and how signals are, are um, transmitting. And, and so there's, there's been a lot of suggestion that this is helpful. And then there's been suggestion um, that combining Kratom and CBD actually is beneficial to even more beneficial to, um, to chronic pain treatment. And, Mm -hmm. and those are things that we've, we've actually been interested in and we've been, trying to study in uh, animal models as well. We just haven't gotten down the road far enough to put any publications out around this yet, but we've definitely been looking at chronic pain models and animals, um, which are much more involved than your typical uh, pain models where you may hear somebody talk about a, a tail flick or a hot plate or a tail withdrawal from mm-hmm. warm water assay. These are all measurements of sort of reflexive pain. Yeah. So acute pain, like hitting your thumb with the hammer um, versus a chronic pain model where we actually uh, do surgical procedures to damage nerves uh, in, so that we can really try and mimic uh, something like sciatica or something mm-hmm. like uh, diabetic neuropathy or something like uh, chemotherapy-induced neuropathies um, and, and really study those changes with other medications. And so a whole other area of my research does that, mm-hmm. um, totally, totally synthetic molecules targeting different systems. Um, but seeing with, with kratom alkaloids, they definitely seem to be much more effective in chronic pain states than they are in acute pain states. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where we're pursuing. And then is there is there really an added benefit to adding CBD? And if so, how much? Um, some questions we're looking at at the moment as well. So, you know, I think, I think there's potential in the chronic pain space. Um, we just have to keep sort of digging and, and find that potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, I'm cognizant of your time, but I just want to spend just a, a couple moments on seven hydroxy um, because it, I think in one of your papers, it mentions sort of a, a 22 times plus, uh, effect, forgive my language here, you could correct it, effectiveness versus mitragynine. Um, is there any concern with overdoing that or is there actually a ceiling effect with with uh, 7-hydroxy? So we have not, um, we have not looked at... Uh, there, there's a ceiling effect with mitragynin mm-hmm. for for sure. I do not really believe there's a ceiling effect with 7-hydroxy. There is a potential to um, overdose. There, there is a potential to go into respiratory depression. Um, I think you have all of these potentials there like you would with a typical opioid. 7-hydroxy is, is very, very different than than mitragynin, even though the only change is the addition of an OH or a hydroxy group yeah. to the molecule, what happens is it, it actually 
changes the three-dimensional space that that molecule occupies. And 7-hydroxy, that hydroxy insertion actually makes the molecule um, bend into a configuration that's more similar to morphine. Mm-hmm. And it interacts much more efficiently with the mu opioid receptor. Uh, in fact, it's I've said it in a couple of places that to me it's one of the most selective opioid compounds I've seen that's not based on morphine uh, or, or that chemical scaffold. And so sonohydroxy uh, to me is much more typical opioid, uh, even though structurally it's very different. Um, and signaling wise, it's, pro- it's very different as well. It doesn't recruit a, a secondary signaler called beta arrestin, um, which is an intracellular signaling pathway. So it gets very complicated when you activate the receptor, the receptor changes conformation and it can recruit, uh, proteins from intracellular stores to have different effects and activate different downstream pathways. Um, and one of the biggest differences in the cratinomalkaloids is they don't recruit beta arrestin. And beta arrestin is a protein that's believed to be involved in some of the side effects of the opioids, like respiratory depression and GI constipation. Um, and so because it doesn't recruit this beta arrestin, the thought right now is that it has less uh, of these side effect liabilities. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've also seen in animal models. We see less respiratory depression than traditional opioids. We see less constipation than traditional opioids. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't still see uh, potential for abuse and addiction. And and um, ultimately, if you take too much, it, it's not a good thing. Yeah. I, I think it's the same thing with mitragynin, where uh, I mentioned earlier what what we think the the uh, overdose is much more stimulant looking like when you when you take the whole plant material and the you know the other underscore thing here is I'm talking about all these alkaloids because we've studied them individually so mm-hmm. I've, I've often used the analogy that it's like taking a symphony orchestra and plucking out each instrument one by one to listen to them at full blast and not listen to them in their natural um, you know, symphony of, of combination. And it's very difficult to say. And then the other thing is when you take something like uh, kratom as a whole plant material, you're looking at many, many chemicals, not just the alkaloids, but other tannins and sugars and steroids mm-hmm. and other phytochemicals that are involved. And how do those all play into this uh, symphony as well. And, you know, we're, we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg right now with the alkaloids. And, and that's mainly because of a historical perspective that plants producing alkaloids mainly are the things that are causing the effect. And so you go after that low hanging fruit, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, to start with. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for this amazing education. I guess one last question to leave everybody with is, uh, where do you think we'll go with the FDA and Kratom? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. Um, and I, I don't know the answer, uh, to be honest with you. And so the, the United States FDA is obviously out to to protect the public, and, and I can never fault them for being overly cautious. Um, obviously, there, there was... Uh, a real concern that the FDA was out to get Kratom. Um, and, and, and that may be true. Uh, I don't, I don't necessarily decide on that uh, from the perspective that I think the FDA really has to do their job, really has to protect our, our, our public population from harm. And they do this with, with many things. Now, you know, we'll, we'll hear about uh, uh, salmonella outbreaks or, Listeria outbreaks in our food chain uh, on a regular basis, but then the FDA doesn't say let's ban romaine lettuce, right? Mm-hmm. So there, there's been that controversy around this as well. Um, the, I, the FDA is doing some studies uh, with Kratom, looking at safety of it. Uh, we've been consulted um, by them to look at particularly respiration studies mm-hmm. and really trying to understand uh, what's going on there. Um, you know, the, the, the GMP um, good manufacturing practices that are in place for uh, food and botanical products uh, really 
are in place to be protective as well. So that's where you screen for pathogens, you screen for heavy metals, you screen mm-hmm. for, you know, pesticide residue or anything else that's left over. And I think if, if vendors and the importers follow the GMP guidelines that the FDA puts forth, uh, and really try to work with the FDA instead of pushing back uh, that they're out to get them. I think it could be a f- more fruitful um, experience at the end of the day, but you're always going to have conspiracy theorists and we're always going to have uh, people that are doubting that the FDA is, is really trying to do what's good for everyone. Um, but that to that end, uh, and if you can see the trees behind me, uh, one of the reasons we can't do controlled clinical trials in the United States is because we don't have chain of custody of the material uh, from its growing conditions all the way through the standardization drying yeah. process everything. So one thing that we've set out to really do in our horticultural um, studies is to produce a strain of, of U.S. grown kratom that uh, we utilize and understand essentially from consumer uh, what that product's lifespan has been, what the exact contents of alkaloids are, make that into sort of a standardized product that we can then look at in a controlled clinical trial setting and say, okay, here are the real benefits that we can see in humans and, and it is safe, or here's the danger and we need to avoid this. So Mm -hmm. I I think it's going to be the former rather than the latter, but uh, we'll just have to see how time, time uh, is on our side. Well, time, not not to sound too corny here, it seems like time is running up for us. But Chris, this is absolutely amazing. Thank you for this education. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful for your time. And hopefully I can come visit you either between the hedges at UGA or at Florida. And we can uh, talk a little bit more about Kratom in person. Yeah, that would be great. It'd be good to show you our fields out there and uh, and see see what it looks like in in the real in the real wild, if you will. <laughs> amazing. Chris, thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. All right. Thank you. Take care. That one could have easily gone on for another hour, two plus. And I hope to someday go and visit the lab.